The question I'd like to consider this evening is how we can manifest our intention for loving-kindness and our aspiration for bodhicitta, that is, our aspiration to practice for the benefit of all beings, how we can manifest these intentions and aspirations in the world, in the work environment that we have. How can we manifest it in our relationships? Can we put these intentions and aspirations into practice in our lives? When we make the aspiration of bodhicitta, and my practice be for the benefit of all beings, or when we repeat the phrases of loving-kindness, May all beings be happy and free of suffering. They have tremendously fruitful consequences. We're beginning to train our minds with those deep motivations. But it's also not sufficient. There's something more we need to do. In the language of the streets, we need to walk our talk. We can sit here, may all beings be happy, and may I practice for the welfare of all. And we can do it and do it and do it, and it hopefully will really sink in. But it's not enough. We have to put it into practice. And the Buddha gave a very clear teaching on how to put it into practice. So I think it's important that we really take this in. In one verse of the Dhammapada, he summed up all the 45 years of his teachings. So it's really a very concise and powerful verse. He said, Refrain from unwholesome actions, perform wholesome ones, and purify the mind. This is the teachings of all the Buddhas. Now the last line is interesting because it highlights the timeless nature of the Dharma. These are the teachings of all the past Buddhas, present, future. This is the nature of the Dharma, the timeless, the truth that is timeless. Refrain from unwholesome actions, perform wholesome ones, and purify the mind. As he typically did, the Buddha didn't just stop with that verse. He clarified for us, okay, what are the unwholesome actions, in case we're not keying in (laughs) to what it is we're supposed to be avoiding, he laid it out. He said, okay, these are the ten unwholesome actions. And, you know, and sometimes, sometimes I get the feeling or I imagine the Buddha must have felt like he was teaching kindergarten. <laughs> okay, now, <laughs> these are the ten bad ones. Don't do them. <laughs> and yet somehow we need to hear them again and again and again. So... We really let it in. 
You know, when we first began teaching in this country, it was kind of interesting. We'd just come back from India, very enthusiastic about our practice, wanting to share it. But we had a real reluctance to talk about morality. We felt, well, people aren't really coming to hear about this. They're coming to get enlightened, and they don't want to hear about you know, right and wrong and good and bad. And it took some years, actually a surprising number of years, of teaching to realize that that is a huge mistake. That we can't separate out you know, ethical behavior and morality from realization. But they're all aspects of the same path, the same lives. So it's tremendously important that we re-articulate again and again the importance of ethical behavior. And as you probably know, so many of the difficulties that happen in Dharma scenes all across the world, in the West and in Asia, happen because people have forgotten that the morality of non-harming is the foundation of the spiritual path. Our whole journey rests on this foundation. So we really have to understand it and remember it and live it. It said that what most moved the Buddha after his enlightenment, moved him to teach, was his seeing so many beings in the world and might have been looking at us, so many beings seeking happiness and yet out of habit, out of deeply conditioned patterns, doing the very things that cause suffering. It's a very poignant situation. You know, that we want happiness and peace in our lives and in the world, and yet through ignorance keep doing the very things which are the conditions for suffering for ourselves and others. And that's why these teachings of the Buddha are so powerful. So what are the ten unwholesome actions that the Buddha said, these are worth avoiding. They cause harm. Harm to other people, harm to ourselves. The first of them, and one that one would think is very obvious, is not killing. Not killing other living beings. Now, for most of us, we probably live that to some extent. We probably don't go around killing other people. But just imagine how different the world would be if everyone even took that precept to that extent, not to kill other people. The world would be a completely different place. Something that seems so obvious and so basic We can take it much further. We can refine that to a much greater degree to not take the life of any living being. Not killing animals for sport or livelihood. Not killing things because we don't like the way they look. (laughs) In my India years, I was living up, uh, in the summertime, I was living up in the mountains in Dalhousie which was a, called an Indian hill station, about seven, seven, eight thousand feet, and I had just rented this rather funky little cottage. 
there were these huge spiders on the wall, you know, like. <laughs> we'll talk about exaggeration later. <laughs> they were big. <laughs> they were big spiders. And you know, in this country, and they were ugly and hairy and. <laughs> Yeah, and I was just living. They were in my bedroom and in the kitchen. And it's like, the first tendency is, I don't like it, you know, get rid of it. But I was already quite immersed in the teachings and really was trying to live this precept, you know, of not killing. And it was a great training in peaceful coexistence. Now, they were fine. They really were not aggressive. (laughs) They didn't attack me. And so I just got comfortable, okay, <laughs> you know, they're hanging out on the wall and they probably think the house is theirs. It was okay. You know, I didn't, we don't have to kill or get rid of everything we don't like. And even with things that are somewhat dangerous, I mean, there were also scorpions there. You know, one morning I woke up and there's a scorpion on the floor. And again, the first tendency, especially in our culture, is, oh, you know, get out the can of raid or whatever it is. But it was not so difficult, you know, to capture the scorpion in a glass or cup, whatever it was, and take it outside. We can begin to live our lives just with this sense of respect or connection to all living things. And it changes the nature of our own heart. Because in every act of killing or harming another being, in addition to the obvious pain and suffering it causes the being, it also causes that sense of separation, of alienation, of contraction in ourselves. There's really a sense of being cut off. For those of you after the retreat who would just like to explore this interrelationship of life forms further, there's a wonderful book called Kinship with All Life, And it's just the accounts of quite a special being who was somehow able to communicate telepathically with all kinds of beings, not only with kind of his pet dog or or cat, but even with flies and and amazing stories in the book. Whether it's all literally true or not, I couldn't say, but it really was a wonderful spirit, you know, communicated of the oneness of life. What's interesting with this is that it's not always easy and sometimes very difficult difficult ethical questions arise. Now what do we do with malaria mosquitoes? Do we not spray to kill them? Sometimes there are, you know, disease disease carrying beings. So sometimes there are very hard questions. It's not always so easy. But I think that we should always have the compassion and the care and the concern and never to take the life of another being lightly. It may be that under certain circumstances we feel there is the greater value and that it's important to do, but it should always be from a place of compassion, not aversion not ill will, not dislike. We need to be present in our lives, in our actions regarding this. 
That's the first of the unwholesome actions the Buddha pointed out. He said, refrain from killing, from harming beings. This can be practiced and refined to each one of us. The second, again, is a very obvious one, and that is not stealing, not taking that which doesn't belong to us. Not being dishonest, not being dishonest in our work. On retreat, there sometimes gets a very heightened sensitivity to this precept. I remember once I was on retreat and I was sharing a room with someone, and I was just taking a shower, and you know his shampoo was on in the shower, and I knew that he wouldn't mind, and so I just used some of his shampoo. But afterwards. It was just that slight, I mean, this is not some great grievous sin. (laughs) But it was amazing in the sensitivity of the silence and the retreat and the increased mindfulness. It felt a little off. It felt it was taking something which wasn't offered, which wasn't given. And it didn't feel, have that quality of impeccability. It's really beautiful to refine our understanding of non-harming, of what each of these uh, actions means. You know, in the in the rules for the monks, they actually uh, say that anything the monk. The monk or nun cannot take anything worth more than just a few cents. I forget what it was, was two cents or three cents, without it breaking the precept, if it has not been offered. So it's very... So maybe the shampoo got under the line, I don't know. (laughs) But it also becomes a practice of beautiful living. Now, it's almost as if our life, we create our life as a work of art. And if we're paying attention to our actions, we can really make it something of beauty. But it takes a great awareness, a great attention to what we do, so that we're not simply acting habitually, out of habit, quickly. (coughs) So the first of the unwholesome actions is is killing, and the second is stealing. The third... It's a huge area of most people's lives. Third unwholesome action is that of sexual misconduct. And there are various levels to this, depending on the context of our life choices. So, for example, as lay people living in the world, it means not committing adultery or not being dishonest in our sexual relations, not committing those actions which cause harm to another. When we're on retreat, you know, there's the temporary abstinence, where for the time that we're on retreat, we take a precept to refrain from any sexual activity. And then monks and nuns take the vows of celibacy for as long as they're living the life of a monk or nun.
We can learn a lot about the nature of desire in periods of abstinence. When we take a vow or a precept or resolve for whatever period of time, like for the retreat, it gives us the space in that, in that vow of abstinence, it really gives us the space to look carefully at the force and the nature and the workings of desire and lust in the mind, of wanting. We can become aware of the tremendous force and power of this energy. Now often we feel most alive most vibrant when there's strong sexual passion and energy. And there can be the feeling of just enlivening our whole being. So we need to be aware of this energy and to use it skillfully because it's very powerful. And we all know of so many situations, either in our own lives or friends or through the media, of so much harm being done from people driven by this strong force. One of my favorite lines in all the teachings, something Upandita said, and this of course is a translation, now he said it in Burmese, but the translation was, lust cracks the brain. Because it just hits the nail on the head. It is amazing, isn't it? You know, when there is this strong, lustful feeling, strong desire, it's like we get lost in it somehow. You know, and it can drive us to do so many things. It can be used in a loving way. But we really have to be mindful. We have to be aware. So that it doesn't crack the brain. And we don't do unwholesome, unskillful things. The beauty of a retreat and a time at least of temporary abstinence from acting out desires is that it gives us a chance to really see deeply and clearly the impermanent, selfless nature of desire. Because it will arise you know, at different times This is a force that's going to come up. We feel it in the body, we feel it in the mind. In the space of the retreat, in the space of mindfulness, we're able to see it arise and be there and leave by itself. And we begin to see when desire is there, we neither have to express it, nor do we have to repress it. Because in its nature, like everything else, it is impermanent. Can we simply hold the space, rest in the space of awareness? It's there, we see it, we note it, we're mindful of it. We note it once, twice, 10,000 times. Desire, 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 wanting, lust, lust. And at a certain point, it's gone. And it's very interesting also to pay attention to what it feels like in that moment when desire leaves. Because as seductive as it is, in the midst of it, when it leaves, there's always that feeling of, 
it's like relief. It's like we're being let out of the grip of something. So on retreat, there's a chance to see this many, many times. We learn about this, and this is what gives us the wisdom and the understanding in our lives. When desire, when there's strong lust, when there's strong passion, sexual passion, it gives us the space to hold it in a balanced and wise and loving way. Tremendously important. So these are the three unwholesome actions of the body. Not killing and stealing and sexual misconduct, which we refrain from. The Buddha then talked about four unwholesome actions of speech. And this is so amazing because speech is such a pervasive and powerful force in our lives. I think it's one of the great blessings of coming on retreat where we can finally be in silence because there is so much talk in our lives. But when you think about your own life and what goes on in the world, it's not difficult to see that there is a huge amount of suffering in the world that comes from not paying attention to the quality of our speech. It impacts our relationships, it impacts our minds, and mostly we just let the words spill out. And I find it quite striking that the Buddha singled out right speech as one aspect of the Eightfold Path. And these these are the things that the Buddha said, these are the steps that lead to awakening, to full enlightenment, to Buddhahood. And right speech is one of them. And yet how often, really in our lives, do we simply relegate speech to kind of a second-hand spiritual practice. It's not really as good as sitting in meditation. We don't give it the importance that it needs. So what are the four kinds of wrong speech which really need our attention? The first of them, and again it's very obvious, is not lying, not saying that which isn't true. You'd think this would be simple. Don't lie. But I find in myself and my observation of other people's conversations that it's surprisingly difficult because there are lots of gradations of saying what's not true. You know, I mean, there are the big lies, the whoppers. But then there are also... Yeah, just little lies or little exaggerations, like the size of the spiders. <laughs> Maybe small lies by way of self-aggrandizement or because we're trying to protect ourselves in some way. We think people won't like us 
You know, if we say something that's true, either about ourselves or others, we try to protect others, and we think lying is the best way to do it. It's a great disservice. It has enormous consequences because it diminishes people's ability to trust their own perception of things. Now, people may feel something is wrong or off, but in the face of a lie, they may begin to doubt their own sense of it. It just causes disharmony, a lack of trust. You know, in the Bodhisattva's journey, all the past lives from the time he was destined or predicted you know, that he would become a Buddha, in all those countless lifetimes of practice until he became fully enlightened, it said that he committed a lot of misdeeds. It's not that from the moment you know he was destined to Buddha, he was all of a sudden fully perfect. He did a lot of wrong actions. But it said that the one thing he never did from that time was to knowingly say that which is untrue. Because of the depth of the commitment to awakening, to the truth, that's what the Dharma means. Dharma means truth. He never knowingly said that which is untrue. That's a tremendously powerful and inspiring commitment. Now, when we can, <coughs> when we consider the whole Buddhist, <coughs> excuse me, worldview of many lifetimes and many planes of existence and many world systems, and just the the magnitude and the vastness of this vision, within this there are some things which are considered to be more important than life itself. Some things are held to be of greater value, given the long continuity of life and death and rebirth. And one of them is commitment to the truth. Even in recent times, there are some people who so exemplify this and hold this that it's, it's quite amazing and inspiring and beautiful. Some years ago, maybe it was about ten years ago or so, a book came out called Life and Death in Shanghai. I don't know if you remember it. But it was written by this Chinese woman was a very educated woman in China, in communist China. And during the uh, Cultural Revolution, uh, she was imprisoned. And she was tortured. And they were trying to get her to say something to incriminate uh, Zhou Enlai, the premier at that time, because of the political situation. And even in the face you know, of the imprisonment and the torture. She had such a commitment to truth that she would not say or write or sign anything that wasn't true. And the story goes on and it's, it ends up with her final release and actual living in Washington, they say. But I was so moved by the power of that integrity So then when I think of our own lives, and even not in the face of imprisonment and torture, you know, can we rise to this? Can we practice it? 
And even if we fall away at times, can we keep coming back to this commitment to truth? It's a tremendous spiritual strength and a great strength in our lives. It is surprisingly difficult and it also takes a great deal of sensitivity because the Buddha said not only speak what is true but speak what is useful. So that when we do speak truth is not the only measure we need to see is it this is the useful time to say it. And not lying. Second kind of wrong speech is not using harsh speech or angry speech. How often in moments of you know, frustration or anger do we just vent our feelings through our speech in angry, abusive ways? It's harmful. It's a harmful action. It hurts ourselves. It hurts other people. And we can feel it. How do you feel? How would I feel when really strong, angry, hateful words are coming at us? It does not feel good. You know, and there's often feelings of hurt or defensiveness, and often anger comes out of us in reaction. It's not a great way to communicate. And this is not to suggest that we should be denying whatever feelings are there or suppressing them or stuffing them. (coughs) It's not about that at all. It's about learning (coughs) how to communicate skillfully. We can communicate whatever it is that we're feeling without venting our anger through harsh and angry speech. This takes practice. The third category of wrong speech is perhaps the hardest one to avoid. First is (coughs) not saying untruths. The second is refraining from harsh or angry speech. The third one (coughs) is not gossiping. No backbiting or talking about other people. Have you noticed how much of our speech is talking about others? I mean, it's an amazing percentage. And it makes one wonder, what is the joy of it? Now, we get juiced by it. But what's the motivation? You know, what really is behind it? It's probably not metta. And more likely, in some way, it's reaffirming some sense of self. You know, that when we talk about others, even in kind of a light way, but so often, you know, there's some implied judgment or criticism or something, comparison. Well, what's going on there? What's fueling that kind of speech? What's motivating it? It would be very helpful to really notice what's going on in our own hearts at that time. There's another even more subtle kind of gossip where it's not about others, but it's about ourselves. Where in speech, in our communication, 
somehow we keep turning the conversation back to ourselves. You know, so somehow we find ourselves always in center stage in the conversation. These are the habit patterns you know, that we fall into. The Buddha is pointing out this is not a skillful one. It's just strengthening the sense of ego, the sense of I, the sense of separation. There was a Spanish poet, I forget his name, who wrote, if you want to talk, first ask a question and then listen. That's really good advice in terms of speech. Okay, so the fourth of the wrong speeches is frivolous or useless talk. And again, this is a very interesting one to observe just how often we say totally useless things. <laughs> I'm amazed I can be in a social setting and just hanging out, relaxing, you know, and a conversation is going on, and then all of a sudden I'll just... something will come out <laughs> which contributes absolutely nothing <laughs> to the well-being of this world. <laughs> And at those times when I can actually see it coming and refrain, I don't have to say that. There really is this feeling of just inner, kind of inner stillness or kind of inner peace, a tranquility that comes from the restraint in that kind of useless talk. Because when that kind of speech becomes prevalent, then... At that time, really, our words are worthless, and our relationships are not very respected or respectful. It takes being awake in this arena. I mean, it's quite amazing, isn't it, that of ten unwholesome actions which the Buddha is laying out for us, four of them have to do with speech. This is not insignificant. This is not some secondary level of practice. This is a huge part of our lives. If we are practicing to be awake, to be free, we absolutely need to pay attention to this. The last three of the unwholesome actions are the unwholesome actions of mind. The first of them is covetousness, the wanting mind. We want what others may have or want things out in the world. It's that feeling in the mind of never having enough. You know, in the Buddhist, in the Buddhist uh, imagery, it's the hungry ghost realm where you know these beings are depicted as having huge stomachs and pinhole mouths. So there's no way of ever being satisfied. And that's really just an iconographic expression of the mind state of covetousness. I think it has its contemporary uh, form in catalog consciousness. 
You know the mind state when you're looking through catalogs and you can't put them down? You know, there must be something in here I want. You know, I keep looking, wanting, wanting, wanting. That's mostly junk. This covetousness, when it's, when it's really out of hand, when it's out of balance, really can lead to a lot of other unwholesome mind states. It can lead to envy, it can lead to jealousy, it can lead to the sense of continual unfulfillment. The Buddha talked of how contentment is our greatest wealth, the feeling of being at peace. And we need you know, the basic necessities of our lives. But can we be at ease then with what we have, instead of being driven, as is so prevalent in our culture, you know, just wanting more and more and more and more? There's no rest in it. Covetousness. The second of the unwholesome mind states. There are three unwholesome actions of body, not killing, not stealing, sexual misconduct. The four of speech, lying, harsh speech, gossip, and frivolous talk, and the three unwholesome actions of mind, covetousness. The second one is ill will or aversion. This is an unwholesome mind state in that it creates suffering for ourselves, for others. And aversion is an umbrella for many different kinds of feelings that may arise. No hatred, or impatience, or rage, or anger, or fear, or grief are all forms of aversion. When we want something and we don't get it, we can feel ill will, we can feel aversion. When we don't want something and we do get it, we don't want something and it comes to us, Likewise, we can feel aversion. Just notice, and this is a very important part of our practice here, as well as in the world, notice carefully what are the situations when aversion, ill will, fear, grief, impatience, irritation, all these forms. Notice the situation when these states of mind are arising. I think you will find as you investigate that it always comes when there's something unpleasant that we're not opening to, we're not accepting. Ill will, aversion, is the conditioned response to unpleasant situations, unpleasant experiences. We don't like them, whether they're external situations or experiences in our own body and mind. When something unpleasant is there, and we close off, we're not willing to be with it. We get caught by that reaction. Very often, we get caught in reactions of ill will to imaginary situations. I remember being on a self-retreat. This was for a couple of months. And there was a meeting scheduled 
for after my retreat. And it was a meeting that I just thought was going to be a really difficult exchange of views. I spent hours in that meeting fighting with people, <laughs> you know, and getting all worked up. And how can they think that? You know, that's really stupid. <laughs> just on and on and on. This is, you know, in, out, in, out. <laughs> it was amazing to me how my mind just kept creating this imaginary... It hadn't happened. I was imagining what it would be like and getting angry about what I was imagining. Mark Twain summed it up really well. He said, some of the worst things in my life never happened. (laughs) This is our minds. So we need to practice seeing, you know, and really noticing what's going on. Sometimes questions come up about grief and sorrow. These are very tender emotions. You know, and the question of whether in grief and sorrow is aversion present in them as well. Or could we say, well, these are just natural expressions of the human condition. There's a great delicacy when we start exploring the nature of these feelings We really need to do it with a very delicate touch. Because we want to engender the ability to hold, to create the space for these feelings to be there when they arise. They do arise, they usually arise in very powerful situations. So we need to create the space of openness. And at the same time, have the willingness to just look and investigate on a deeper level, okay, what are some of the conditions? What are some of the underlying causes for these emotions? I think there's a very useful distinction made between the feeling of grief and the feeling of loss. And it I began to explore this or investigate this in the context of some of the Buddha's teachings. I'll just give you the examples that really spurred my interest to investigate. In the beginning of the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the basic discourse on the foundations of mindfulness. So this is, this is one of the central teachings of the Buddha. He said, this practice that we're doing here, this practice of mindfulness, is the way for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearing of pain and grief, for the realization of Nibbana. So here's the Buddha saying very clearly, yes, this is the practice and this is where it leads to the freeing of the mind of sorrow, grief, lamentation, despair, that we actually can be free of this. Then on another occasion, the Buddha was commenting or reflecting 
at the time of the death of his chief disciple, Sariputta, who was older than the Buddha, you know, and second only to the Buddha in his wisdom and understanding. So Sariputta died, and the Buddha commented that it was like the light of the sun and the moon had disappeared from the sky. That's a very deep and poignant statement about the feeling of loss. There was the light of the sun and the moon, and it was like that was gone, absent. That was the feeling he had about the loss of Sariputta. It was interesting to me to, to hold these two statements in counterpoint. Because on the one hand, the Buddha clearly had accomplished the goal of this practice, the overcoming of grief, lamentation, sorrow. So presumably his mind was free of that, and at the same time, he was expressing the feeling of the loss in that very beautiful image. And so I began to take a look, just in my own experience, Okay, is there a difference here between the feeling of grief and the feeling of loss? I began to sort of explore the possibility that they really are quite different feelings and that grief may be the non-acceptance of the feeling of loss. Because loss is there, it's there for all of us, and in fact it's there in every moment. Because loss is really another word for change. When this is powerful, when the loss is of something significant, if we cannot accept it, if we cannot be with it, it can easily turn into grief. Just exploring this, I think, can begin to open up different levels of understanding for us. And even as we do this, it's important, it's really important, for us to be right where we are in our practice and in our lives and not idealize some state of how we should be because that's not truthful. That's no longer honest. Most of us are probably not yet free of attachment an aversion of pride or of fear. We're not free of sorrow and grief. And so we need to make the space to be right where we are, feeling what we're feeling, and at the same time not drowning in it. At the same time really looking, getting interested, seeing what's underneath it seeing where the freedom is in those experiences. This is the challenge for us. Okay, the third and the last of the unwholesome actions of mind is covetousness, there's ill will, aversion, all the forms of it. The last of the unwholesome actions of mind is wrong view. Wrong view has a particularly Buddhist meaning here. One meaning of wrong view 
is when we don't consider the law of karma, the understanding that our actions have consequences, that our actions bring results. And there are many people in the world who live their lives as if their actions don't have consequences, and so therefore don't pay attention to the quality of what they do. Wrong view here is the belief that there's no skillful or unskillful actions. Well, this is a very kind of dangerous view because then there's no guideline, there's no rudder in our lives to kind of steer us on a course that leads to happiness. We're just acting out all the patterns of our conditioning. When wrong view is present in the mind, we don't consider the results of our actions. We don't consider where our actions are leading. We don't consider whether we want to go there or not. And so we're just carried along you know, on the currents of habit. Not long ago there was a study reported in the New York Times that found that money, fame, and power don't bring happiness in people's lives. Surprise! (laughs) (laughs) And yet, really, we need to look at our own lives and the own choices that we're making, you know, in little things, in big things. Are we really paying attention to the fact that what we do has consequences, each of our actions, of body, of speech, of mind, so that we live wakefully. We live making wise choices, choices that lead to happiness, to peace. And that's why the Buddha laying out these ten unwholesome actions is such a gift to us. Because the more we hear them, the more we reflect, the more we internalize them, then right in the moment of intention, we might actually awaken to what we're about to do. Is this wholesome or not? Is this leading to suffering? Is it leading to happiness? It gives us the space, it gives us the freedom to choose. And so the clearer we are and the more imbued we are with this understanding, the freer we are in our lives. There's another aspect of wrong view which I'll just mention, but it's really another whole talk, perhaps next time, and that is the wrong view in terms of this belief or attachment to the view of self, of I, that our whole lives revolve around this notion of self. Of course, the Buddha's great awakening to the illusion of this, to the dream of it. These are the ten unwholesome actions, the Buddha said, pay attention to them, avoid doing them. They cause suffering. And so we refrain from killing and stealing and sexual misconduct causing harm, 
we refrain from saying that which is not true. We really commit ourselves to truthfulness. We refrain from harsh speech or angry speech. We try to refrain from gossip and useless talk. We train ourselves to free the mind from covetousness and ill will. Really develop the wisdom which eradicates wrong view. out of the Buddha's great compassion that he laid this out so simply and so clearly. This whole teaching is not about guilt and self-judgment about our previous past unskillful actions because we've all done lots and lots of things. Rather, it's about the strength that comes from the moment we make a commitment to this kind of moral integrity, the morality of non-harming. From the moment we make the commitment, there's a tremendous strength that comes in our lives and in our practice. And so it's a source of great beauty. There's one story of the Dalai Lama. He said that he came from a part of Tibet where people were naturally very short-tempered. But he said over the years he trained himself. And now, you know, some anger or disturbance may come for a few moments, but that usually it passes. He said that even though because of how busy he is, you know, and has this incredible schedule, So because of this, he's quite a lazy practitioner. But still, he said, he's seen a great deal of improvement. (laughs) I love the way the Dalai Lama speaks and shares himself. We can improve in this way. We can undertake these practices. Even if we're born in a part of the world where people are naturally (laughs) short-tempered. or covetous, or whatever, or gossip a lot. (laughs) These are trainings. We can do this. This is our practice. We practice the teachings of all the Buddhas. Refrain from what is unwholesome, to do what is wholesome and good, and to purify our minds. I'd like to close with just a few lines of a poem by Galway Cannell, the great New England poet, which really reflects the fruit of these practices. It really practices of virtue, of responsibility. He said, sometimes it's necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to teach it in words and in deeds It is lovely, so that it flowers from within of self-blessing. I feel this is what these teachings are about. They reteach us our loveliness. 
that place of inner beauty, so that we flower from within of self-blessing. Sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.